El Extraordinario. Extraordinario. I'm on the train, on my way to Basel. This afternoon before I head back to Lucerne, I'm planning on making a quick stop in Zurich to meet the sheet music collector. ID, please. Yeah, just a second. After my chat with Amanda, I've decided that I also have to go to St. Gallen. But first, I want to see the other works that Ursula Bloom painted during her time at the psychiatric hospital. Two out of the four paintings are in Basel, which comes as no surprise, considering the small city packs 40 museums into 14 square miles. Amanda and I went for a walk yesterday, and she mentioned something that gave me some perspective on the place I'm visiting today. It's just crazy how obsessed that city is with art. <laughs> so back in the 60s, or was it the 70s? I looked it up later. She was referring to something that happened in the fall of 1967. Back then, there were two Picassos in the Basel Kunstmuseum, right? Right. But the paintings weren't actually owned by the museum. They were on loan from a private collector. Now get this. The collector's son, who was a businessman, filed for bankruptcy and decided to raise some cash by selling the paintings, right? Uh-huh. In response, the regional government stepped up and offered to buy them. However, since it was public money, the opposition requested a referendum. Whoa, how very democratic. I know, it's so Swiss. <laughs> but the most amazing part is that thousands of people took to the streets. Wait, what do you mean? Were they against this? No, on the contrary, they wanted to make sure that the Picasso stayed in Basel. Lots of young people came out with signs saying things like, all you need is Pablo. <laughs> no way. <laughs> For real. <laughs> so a referendum was held, and the majority voted in favor of buying the paintings. Okay. However, the saga didn't end there. The government could only cover a fraction of the cost, so they reached out to the public to make up for the rest. They basically set up a crowdfunding campaign before the term even existed. Can you believe that? <laughs> so they put in all of this effort to make sure the Picasso stayed in the city. How crazy is that? That is truly mind-blowing. I know. Oh, and Picasso was still alive at the time, so when he found out, he gave Basel another four of his paintings. Well, I guess that's the least he could do. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I'm not saying they don't love culture in other cities, but where else are they going to treasure them like they do there? You know what I mean? Totally. My conversation with Amanda made me realize how little I know about the art world. And it occurred to me that I needed an expert to help me better understand Ursula Bloom's paintings. Christina? Yes. Hi. Hi, nice to meet you. Thank you so much for coming. Um, do you mind if I record our conversation? Of course not, go ahead. This is Christina, one of Amanda's friends. She works at the Schallager Museum's archive, an institution that focuses mainly on research and preservation of artworks. Where do I do that? Over there, but come with me to this counter. I think I can get us both in. Oh, that's awesome. Christina's free this morning, and she's kindly offered to be my guide at the Kunstmuseum in Basel. Really good. Christina knows that I'm working on a podcast about Ursula Bloom, and even though she's familiar with her paintings, she can't tell me much about her that I don't already know. What she can do is help me understand what her contemporaries were like. I ask her about the Blue Rider, the group of painters from Munich that she used to hang out with. For me, that period was the best moment in history to be a painter. If I was a painter and you let me choose any time or place to live in, I'd pick that group in a heartbeat. Yeah, but you'd have to live through World War I and II. Yes, that's true. But the tensions that led to the war had a lot to do with the explosion of creativity at the time. 
Christine and I travel through time as we walk through different rooms displaying medieval, renaissance, baroque, and neoclassical artworks until we reach the early 20th century. Christina stops in front of a painting by Kandinsky called Improvisation 35. It's an abstract work, an intricate combination of shapes and colors. Kandinsky was the leader of the Blue Rider group. In fact, they took their name from one of his paintings, the Blau Reiter. This work was created later on in his life when he evolved from expressionism to abstraction. You see, to understand these paintings, you need to imagine them in their context. If I were to ask you what you thought of the painting, what would you say? Well, don't hate me, but honestly, I'm not a fan. (laughs) (laughs) Don't worry, I'm not going to hate you. That's a very common reaction. You see, uh, we've grown up watching television and then, you know, came the internet. Our visual culture is frenetic. You and I, we've seen abstract compositions thousands of times. But back then, after centuries and centuries of figurative paintings, Kandinsky and his contemporaries changed the game. They weren't designers combining shapes and colors that looked good together. With this painting, Kandinsky was composing music. Wait, did you just say music? I did. For starters, Kandinsky was a thinesthete, so he could hear colors and see sounds. That kind of reminds me of how Ursula Bloom described things. You know, how she heard melodies in landscapes. Yes, that's why I'm telling you this. She was introduced to the Blue Rider through Paul Clare, who played the violin before he started painting. His mother was a singer and his father was a music teacher. Oh, I had no idea. The whole group was very immersed in music. For them, music was the ultimate form of artistic expression because it doesn't try to represent reality. Music is 100% abstract, and that's why they considered it the purest expression of the artist's soul. Okay, so that's what they were attempting to do with their art. Exactly. Take another look at the painting. Kandinsky could hear each color as sound. I, uh, I can't quite remember them all, but I know that... The yellows represent the sounds of trumpets, and the dark blues represent deeper notes, like the sound of an organ. So the whole painting is like a symphony? Mm Mm-hmm, exactly. Well, I'm not going to say that I can hear the painting when I look at it, but I do understand it better now. Oh, I'm glad to hear it. So, should we head that way? Yeah, sure. Not far away, in the same room, is the painting by Ursula Bloom that I came here to see. It's the one titled Vixie a sheer mountain landscape in blue, pink, and purple tones with fluid, almost violent brushstrokes. After what Christina said, I see Ursula Bloom's paintings in a completely new light. So do you think this painting also has a melody? Uh, Well, each expressionist painter used color differently, but considering she was in with Kandinsky's crowd and how influenced they were by music, it would not surprise me if that was the case. Later on, I came across this quote. Generally speaking, color is a power which directly influences the soul. Color is the keyboard, the eyes are the hammers, the soul is the piano with many strings, the artist is the hand which plays, touching one key after another to cause vibrations in the soul. Kandinsky wrote it in 1911, in his essay, Concerning the Spiritual in Art. Ursula had already met him by then. Christina took the bus with me to the Baylor Foundation where we're going to see another one of Ursula Bloom's paintings. This one is called Takui. Most of the gallery has been taken over by a temporary exhibition devoted to Georgia O'Keeffe, but what catches my eye are the four enormous Picassos by the entrance. 
I mentioned them to Christina. They haven't even got them all on display, you know. This museum owns 33 Picassos. 33? Mm-hmm. Why is this city so obsessed with Picasso? Maybe I should do another podcast about that in the future. Wow. I've never seen this one. It's stunning. We're now in the wing that holds a permanent collection, standing in front of Ursula Bloom's painting. Again, it's a vast landscape depicting a river in red and orange tones. It feels like we're contemplating a sunset, or as if the whole painting was on fire. Oh, the birds are really something. In this painting and in the other one. I know, right? And the colors she's used to paint them. Mm-hmm. Yes, they really make an impression. Her style has a touch of Gabrielle Munter, don't you think? Mm, yeah. I nod as if I know who Christina's talking about and make a mental note to Google her when oh, I get home. You've never heard of her, have you? <laughs> Not really. She was also a member of the Blue Rider group as well as Kandinsky's partner. And as was common back then, she was completely overshadowed by him. How typical. What's worse is he left her for another woman and she gave up painting for 10 years. Uh, you know, now that I think of it, when World War I broke out, they both moved to Switzerland with other members of the group. I'm sure they must have kept in touch with Ursula Bloom. Do you think there might be traces of their relationship in diaries or letters? I know a woman who touched on Gabrielle Munter in her PhD. I can ask her. Oh, that would be amazing. Thanks. When we're done with the museums, I buy Christina lunch at Lowenzorn, a traditional restaurant near the Market Square. We're still chatting about art when I suddenly remember a text in Ursula's notebook that describes the scene similar to the first painting we saw. Amanda's translating the text for me, but when she skimmed through them, she said they were all very similar. Poetic descriptions without specific details about Ursula's life. It was a bit of a letdown. Ah, look, this one here. Can I zoom in? Yeah, sure, go for it. What is it? What did you see? Do you have any other photos of the notebook? Yeah, you can swipe left and right to see the rest of them. Okay, look at the inner edge of the notebook. You can, wait, you can see it clearer in this photo. Some pages have been cut out. Are you serious? Yeah, hang on. You can't really see it in this photo or in this one either. Look here, and you can see it in this one too. Someone has used a sharp blade to remove pages right next to the binding, so it goes unnoticed. But it's practically microscopic. Amanda and I missed that. How did you see it? <laughs> yeah, well, having an eye for these things is literally my job. It's uh, second nature to me, I guess. I don't get it, though. If there was information in the notebook that someone wanted to get rid of, for whatever reason, why didn't they just leave the notebook out of the exhibition in Geneva? Well, I see two possibilities. <coughs> Either... <coughs> <laughs> don't joke on me. Sorry, sorry. I was saying that it could be that the notebook was like that when they got their hands on it simply because Ursula cut out the pages. Yeah, but I'm not, I'm not really buying that because when you tear pages out of your own notebook, you don't do it with such surgical precision. Exactly. Another possibility is that the notebook was already in the collection when it happened. There's, there's usually an official list of objects in the archive. If that were the case, it would have been easier to tamper with the notebook without anyone noticing than to just get rid of it completely. I'm back in Zurich. It's dark, and as I cross the Munster Brook, I stop and breathe in the city. 
the buildings with their pitch roofs, shiver gently as they reflect back to me on the river's dark surface. It all feels slightly unreal, as if I were a character in a painting. And that feeling is about to get worse. I get to the address a little early. Mila lives on Ramistrasse, near Bellevue Platz, on the first floor of an old building. A woman is coming out just as I arrive, so I go in and walk up the stairs to Milo's apartment. When I get there, I notice the door is open. That's when I turn on my recorder. Next, you're going to hear exactly what happened. We haven't edited the sound at all. It's straight from my recorder. Hello? Anyone home? Milo? Hello? Hello? Milo? Are you in there? Milo? Milo? It's Emma Clark. We'd arranged to meet here today. I got here 15 minutes early. Sorry about that. Are you in here? Yes? Um, are you Milo? Was machen Sie hier? Wo ist Milo? Sorry, do you speak English? Who are you? I'm... My name's Emma. I have an appointment here with Milo. Okay, and, and where is Milo? Uh, I don't know. I arrived a moment ago and the door was already open. Can, come with me, please. Uh, with you? Yes, come with me and wait for Milo outside, please. Uh, okay, sure. Can I wait here or wait should I... Wait in the street, please. Okay, sorry. This is when I switched off my recorder. I asked the man if I could wait for Milo by the door, but he told me to wait outside. As I was walking down the staircase, he kept his eye on me to make sure I left the building. He was standing by the door opposite Milo's apartment, so he must have been his neighbor. I turned the recorder on again when I made it back down onto the street a few minutes later. I've been standing here a while and nobody has gone in or out of the building. It's already 6.30, exactly when I was gonna meet Milo. I'm ringing the buzzer for his flat, but I can't tell if he's home, if, if he's been burgled, if something's happened, or... I'm gonna try and reach him on his phone. Hello? Hi, hello. Uh, it's, it's Emma Clark. We were supposed to meet at your place, but the door was open and you're not home right now, are you? Um, yes, this is Emma Clark. Are you... are you Milo Siegenthaler? Yes, but what did you say your name was? Emma. 
And what is it? What do you want then? <laughs> we had an appointment, remember? Hello? I'm here. Sorry. I just... Uh, I don't know who you are. But we talked on the phone yesterday, remember? I, I called you because I found your number among Clara Torres' papers. Clara Torres? That's it. Clara Torres. The woman you... You sent her Ursula Bloom's scores. Are you okay? Yes, sorry, but I don't know what you're talking about. I, I don't remember talking to you and I don't... Those names don't mean anything to me. Wait, what? He didn't know Ursula Bloom either? That's what he said. Did he mean it? I guess so. I don't know. It was pretty weird. Are you sure he was the right guy? 100%. What else did he say? Nothing much. He said he didn't know who I was or who Clara was or Ursula or anybody really. I insisted a bit more, but in the end we just hung up because we didn't know what else to say to each other. It was... It felt like our conversation yesterday never happened. It was so bizarre. But hang on. You did record that conversation, right? When you called him yesterday. You didn't. Well, no, I didn't, all right? I, Emma, I just... come on. You need to be on the ball. You have to record these things. I know, I know. But I came across his phone number in Clara's notes when I was on the train to Geneva yesterday. I hadn't noticed the number before. I mean, I didn't even know if it was an actual phone number. I dialed it to see what would happen. That's why I didn't record the conversation. But it did happen. How else would I know where that man lives? Okay, uh, don't worry. Um, so what did he say when, when you spoke on the phone the first time? Um, I told him I found his number among Clara's notes, and he said he remembered her. He said they'd been in touch a couple of years ago, and he sent her that sheet of music with Ursula Bloom's score and the record Clara had. He said he had other ones and He had he... other records? No, other scores. He had more sheet music. That's why I wanted to meet him. He was going to show them to me and talk me through all this. Did you see anything when you went in, into his flat? What do you mean? I mean, like, anything related to those scores he mentioned, or records, or whatever? No, no, it was... It was an old house, and it was really cluttered. There was a, a long hallway at the entrance with a big bookshelf along the wall that was packed with CDs and vinyl records. It opened onto a little living room that was also packed with records and books and papers and all kinds of stuff. Even if there was anything by Ursula Bloom there, I wouldn't have known where to look for it. And he wasn't home? I don't know. I think he was, because I could hear, I could hear music coming through a door in that little living room, and it cut off suddenly, you know? Yeah. I was knocking on that door when his neighbor showed up and kicked me out of the apartment. I did record that, and all the things that happened when I went into the house, and the conversation after that. It should be in your inbox by now. Okay, I'll listen to it later. Where are you now? At the station in Zurich. I'm heading back to Lucerne. Okay. Call me when you get back to Amanda's. And don't worry, you... David. What is it? Well, first the pages from the notebook. Now this. What's going on here? <laughs>